Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Like Andy was saying, small groups is just one of the best ways to do that. Just a great way to meet people, get to know people on like a real level and and just keep growing in your faith. So I encourage you to that. I'd uh, love to also invite you into our study in the Gospel of John together. We've been working our way on Sundays for the past seven months or so through John's Gospel. And this morning we get to the very last passage in the book. Uh, but before you get too excited, uh, just a heads up, it's not going to be our last week in John. Uh, we uh, had to skip a couple of great passages in order to kind of tie or line up our series with Easter. And so uh, for the next just a few more weeks, we're going to come back to a few of those passages we had to skip. It'll be kind of like a B-Sides album release, right? It's like there's a couple of songs that got recorded, but they didn't make the, they didn't make the cut the first release, so we're going to re-release them because they're still great and you should listen. So anyway, so that'll be the next couple weeks. But then uh, this, over the course of this summer, uh, we're going to spend uh, the summer taking a look at a number of different Old Testament passages together. We've been seven months in the New Testament or so. We're going to spend the summer working our way through a number of different passages in the Old Testament. And my hope this summer is to show you how uh, the Gospels aren't the only, the only part of Scripture that point us towards Jesus. In fact, uh, every page, it points us towards Him. And so can't wait to kind of take you through a bunch of passages in the Old Testament, some I'm sure you'll be familiar with a bunch uh, you probably won't, uh, and uh, I'll show you how Jesus is really at the center of all of it. And so, can't wait to do that with you this summer. I think that'll be a good change of pace and good help, just to help keep rounding us out as we study God's word together. But, like I said, this morning we're in the very last chapter of John, chapter twenty-one. And if you've been paying attention, what you'll find is that chapter twenty-one, in a lot of ways, feels like this kind of weird addition, right? It, uh, I mean, chapter twenty it had such a great ending to it, right? If you were with us last week. We, we saw Jesus or John telling us about Jesus' resurrection and kind of climaxes on this part where even doubting Thomas, who refuses to believe, finally comes to the spot where he believes the truth about Jesus and professes that, that he's God, right? And then John ends with this really great statement, right? This really great summary statement, right? Where he says, all these things, they've been written so that like Thomas and like all the other people in this story, you might really come to believe that Jesus is God, that you might have life through faith in him, right? And if you're John's editor, right? You get to the end of 20 and you're like, boom, nailed it, John. Like that instant classic, like send that off to the scribes. Let's get the sucker published, right? We got to get this baby sent out, right? But John's not done yet, right? The, it doesn't end in chapter 20. There's one chapter left because there's one last storyline that needs to get wrapped up in John's gospel. See, the, the resurrection didn't just mean that Jesus's story wasn't over, it meant as well that Peter's story wasn't over. You see, Peter's been one of the main characters throughout John's gospel. We met him all the way back in chapter 1 when his brother Andrew introduces him to Jesus and he gets his name changed from Simon to Peter and becomes a disciple. And he kept coming up again and again throughout the gospel, usually uh, usually saying or doing something he would almost immediately regret, right? Whether that was telling Jesus that he'd never let him wash his feet in chapter 13, or whether that's pointlessly cutting off a guard's ear, some guy's ear in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, trying to defend Jesus against an entire battalion of Roman soldiers, like just totally pointless, right? But there's one more incident with Peter that John tells tells us about in the gospel. And I can guarantee you it is the one that Peter regrets the most. 
See, it was the, the night that, Jesus prom- that Peter promised he'd die for Jesus, but instead ended up denying that he even knew him. Not once, but three separate times. You see, that was the, that, that was the night of Peter's kind of ultimate failure. You see, all the disciples had abandoned Jesus, but, Jesus had, but Peter had just outright rejected him, outright denied him. It wasn't just hypocritical and cowardly. Peter's failure was unequivocal. It was public. It was brutal. It's the kind of failure that anyone would have trouble forgiving themselves for, let alone believing they could come back from, even if the person that they'd betrayed had forgiven them. See, and that's, that's why, even though Peter's seen the resurrected Jesus and been greeted by him, we saw last week the message of peace, and, and he's been commissioned even to go tell others about this good news. At the beginning of the chapter one, chapter 21, you're going to find that Peter's just back where everything began. He's back fishing again. See, Peter realized that Jesus' story wasn't over, but in his mind, surely his part in that story must be finished. He'd messed up too badly. He'd failed too spectacularly. And yet by including this final chapter, this last story, what John, I think, is trying to help us to see is that the resurrection proves that absolutely was not the case for Peter. And that it's not the case for you and I either when we fail Jesus. And so as we take a look at John's, the close of John's gospel, what we're going to see is not Jesus just forgiving Peter, we're going to see Jesus restoring him. And as we do, what I want to show you is that the, the resurrection, what it means ultimately, right, is that a failed Christian is not a finished Christian. Right? A failed Christian is not a finished Christian. You're, when, if you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the one who's overcome even death, risen, then your failures, they're not the end of your story. See, instead, like Peter, there are opportunities for you to encounter the redeeming grace of God, the grace that empowers you and commissions you to live new resurrected lives for his glory. It's such an encouraging passage. Can't wait to show it to you this morning. So that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into it together. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for your word, and thanks for the chance to get to gather again this morning and to, and to study it together. And so we just want to come to you humbly, God, asking that you uh, might graciously speak to us through it, that you might help us to see, Jesus, that when I, we put our trust in you, that our failures are not final that our stories aren't over, that the role that we have to play in your kingdom isn't finished because you're a God not just who forgives, but who restores. And so might the good news of the gospel be good news to us this morning in fresh ways, wherever we are at. And God, I'm just grateful that uh, even though I don't have the power to make any of that happen, you do. And so God, might you use me and our time in your word for that end. Might you enable us to hear and respond rightly to your word. God, we need you. And so we are so glad that you love to meet us in it. Might you do it again this morning for our good and your glory, we pray. Amen. Like I said, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 21. begins this way. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I don't know, if you were the two other disciples, wouldn't you be like, could I at least get a name? Like, like everyone else gets a name. Can I just, anyways. Um, all right, so uh, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, 
But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for there were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning of coal, a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, but 153. But even with so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? I just love how like rumors, like they just get spread no matter what age you live in, right? Like people can't get the story, right? Anyway, so this disciple, verse 24, he says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Last week in in chapter 20, we we saw how in John's account of the resurrection, he gives us a number of these little vignettes uh, of people's interactions with Jesus, the risen Jesus, whether that was Mary or the disciples or Thomas, right? And we saw how all of those little vignettes, they're meant to show you that that the resurrection, they're meant to show you that how believing that Jesus rose from the dead, right, it's this necessary component of a real, life-transforming, authentic, heart-level faith in Jesus. Without the resurrection, you don't have the real Jesus. You don't know him and you don't believe in him. You see, because the resurrection is, it's the ultimate proof of who he is and it's the, it's the proof of all that he came to do. 
And while there's certainly some baggage that Peter's dealing with in our passage, I think the way he responds when he sees Jesus, when he figures out it's Jesus on the shore, it shows us that Peter, he has that kind of faith. Right? He understands who Jesus is. He's put his faith in Jesus. He understands that Jesus has died for him and has forgiven him. Right? Disciples, they've been out fishing all night because they, they haven't caught anything. Right? And when from their perspective, some, some random dude from the shore shouts out like, hey, why don't you try throwing on the other side of the boat? Right? And whether they're just desperate to catch some fish or desperate to shut this random dude up, right? Uh, they do it. And then they haul in this miraculously huge catch, right? And it's at that instant that John, he's like something, uh, like something clicks for him. Because what he realizes is that, is that it's not just some random dude on the shore. It's Jesus. And the reason why he knows that is because something just like this had happened to them one of the first times they met Jesus. See, back in Luke 5, we read about how uh, one of the first times the disciples had met Jesus, Peter and James and John, they'd been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything. In the morning, they're, they're cleaning their nets, and Jesus kind of commandeers one of their boats, right? And he tells them, why don't you try putting your, fi- your, fish- your nets in again? And they haul in this huge catch, right? And so John sees these two situations. He's like, this is the same. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who's on the shore. And while the situations are the same, and John realizes that, there's something really different about what happens after them. You see, Peter's response in these two passages couldn't be more different, right? In Luke 5, right? In Luke chapter 5, we're told that Peter, he, after he sees this miraculous catch, Peter falls at Jesus' feet and he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Right, this display of Jesus' power and of his glory, that's not good news to Peter in that moment. They scare him because in the midst of Jesus' glory, what Peter senses is his own lack of glory, his own sinfulness. He feels small and weak and dirty. And so he's in Luke 5, he's trying to get away from Jesus. And yet in John 21, his reaction is totally different. Right? As soon as he finds out it's Jesus on the shore, Peter just like jumps in the water. And he's not trying to get away from Jesus. He's trying to get to him as fast as he can, right? And so like when you look at those two stories, you've got to ask the question, what's so different? Right? The situations are really similar, but Peter's response is radically different. What changed? When the obvious answer right, is like between, the time, between those two catches, Peter had come to see and believe who Jesus really was. Right, he'd come to see that Jesus was the Messiah, come to die in his place, forgive his sins, and who's risen from the death, whose who's, who's resurrection from the dead proves all of it true. You see, and so Peter understands who Jesus is. He's come to believe in him. And yet, even though Peter has this genuine saving faith, right, that's changing the way he's relating to Jesus, What is so clear still is that he is still in this place of feeling useless. Like he's just kind of damaged goods now, right? He's not afraid of Jesus. He knows he's been forgiven. But he's pretty sure that that's where his involvement in Jesus' story ends, right? How could he be of any real use to Jesus after that kind of a failure? Like, how could, like, he might as well just go back to fishing. That's the only thing he's really going to make a difference at. See, in in Peter's mind at this point, the the good news of the gospel stopped with forgiveness. See, but what John wants us to see is that Jesus' resurrection not only proves that the message of the gospel is one of forgiveness, but rather that it's also one of restoration. 
You see, everything we see Jesus do in this passage, it speaks to that reality. He doesn't just want Peter to know that he's forgiven. See, Jesus wants Peter to know that he can be restored. He wants him to experience the kind of restoration the gospel brings to people, the kind of life and hope and purpose and meaning and significance that comes with the resurrection. And so as we look at the way Jesus restores Peter in this passage, I think there's another number of really important things that we learn about the, the way that Jesus restores people. We see a number of things about like, the kind of restoration that the gospel brings. Right? And the first thing I want to show you is that, is that the, the kind of restoration the gospel brings, it begins with rewriting our past failures, not erasing them begins with rewriting our failures, not erasing them from the story. See, Jesus doesn't come to Peter, right? He doesn't just tell him like, hey, dude, no worries. Like, everything's good. We're cool, right? There's no, there's no problems, right? He doesn't say, Peter, forget about it, right? I already have, right? Bygones be bygones, right? We moved on. No, Jesus actually does the exact opposite thing, right? Jesus is very deliberately and very intentionally recreating the scene of Peter's deepest, darkest failures, right? In verse 9, when they landed, John tells us they saw a fire of burning coals there. That phrase, right, a fire of burning coals, it's used one other time in the whole New Testament, guess where? Yeah, it's used to describe the fire around which Peter had denied Jesus three times. So you don't need a specialist in counseling or neurobiology to tell you that your deepest, most significant memories, both good and bad, are oftentimes tied not just to events, but they're tied to sounds, they're tied to smells. Right? I can guarantee you every morning when that rooster crowed, Guarantee you Peter got brought back to that night when the rooster crowed as the signal of his denial of Jesus. And I can guarantee you too, every time he smelt the smell of a burning fire, the charcoals there brought him back to that same spot. Right? The fire around which he had denied his Savior and his Lord. And just like Peter was asked three times if he knew Jesus that night, Jesus again asks Peter three times. He gives him three chances to say that he loves him. People have gotten caught up trying to make something out of the different words that Jesus uses for love here, but pretty much every commentator highlights the fact that these words are being used kind of interchangeably. It's the, the key to understanding what's going on here is not the words that Jesus uses for love, it's the number of times he says it. See, Jesus is bringing Peter back to the night the night that defines his story. It's coming back to that moment is really painful for Peter. Right? Verse 17 tells us when Jesus asked Peter a third time if he loved him, says Peter was hurt. The word that's used there, it's, it's like a really strong word. It's not just like, oh, Peter was offended. No, it's like a word that's used to describe like grieving and mourning. See, Peter's, he's like, in an instant, he's back in the weeds on that night. See, but you have to understand, Jesus isn't just trying to make Peter feel bad. He's not trying to be like, wow, the cross really sucked. I hope you feel that now, right? Like, that's not what he's doing in that moment. You see, in order for Jesus to rewrite the defining moment of Peter's story, he can't just erase it. He can't just forget it. You see, he's got to review it with him. 
Because what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to help Peter see that his darkest moment is not just a proclamation of his weakness. It's not just a declaration of his inadequacy and his failures. Instead, it's actually an opportunity for him to experience and to encounter the redeeming grace of God in a way that's actually going to empower his life going forward. You see, even though Peter believes the gospel... Right, that Jesus died for his sins, that he's been forgiven. What you see so clearly right, is that Peter's still living with this kind of religious mindset. right? Religiosity, it says that our strength is the thing that connects us with God's grace, that makes us valuable to his kingdom. right? But the gospel says that it's our weaknesses and it's our failures that actually have the most power to connect us to God's grace because, and to enable us and to empower us for service to his kingdom. J.D. Greer, one pastor, he puts it this way. He says, God not only allows us to fail, he even reminds us of those failures sometimes so that you and I can see that it is his grace, not our performance, that is the basis for our acceptance. He not only lets us fail, he reminds us of them sometimes so that we'll know it's not our performance, that's our foundation. It's his grace. That's the thing. That's the foundation for our relationship with him. You see, Jesus wants to rewrite Peter's story. He wants to turn Peter's darkest moment, his most deepest sense of failure and shame, into his most powerful encounter with the grace of God. Because Jesus knows that the most fruitful Christians are not the ones who have made the least mistakes. Like It's so easy to believe that, like, wow, God really just uses the people that haven't messed up their lives too badly. And that's a total lie. Like everyone in the Bible is just people who are just abject failures. Like Peter clearly is. See, instead, the people that Jesus uses, are the most fruitful Christians aren't the ones who make the least mistakes, but instead the most fruitful Christians are the ones who have discovered the transforming grace of God in the midst of their failures and mistakes. See, here's the truth. Nothing fuels your love for the Lord and your longing to live for him more than when you see that in the midst of all your failures, he loved you. Like when you think Jesus loved you when you're doing pretty good, like that's just not that compelling. But when you see his love for you, when you see his grace made known to you in the midst of your weaknesses, in the midst of all your failures, that fuels a love for him that nothing else does. And what it does is it transforms those failures. Instead of just like pain points, they end up becoming like these beacons that you look back on and you see like, wow, that was, that was a really significant failure. But even more than that, you see it as a really significant opportunity for grace to be made known to you. And the bigger the failure, the bigger God's grace gets to you. And it changes that. You see, but the only way that happens, right, the only way our failures become opportunities for God's grace to get made known to us, the only way our stories get rewritten, right, is not just when we remember our failures, but as we see in this passage too, when we repent from them. That's the second thing we see in the passage, right? The kind of restoration the gospel brings, right, it always begins with Jesus wanting to rewrite our stories, not erase them, but it always requires repentance, See, in the Bible, repentance doesn't mean feeling sorry about something. It means turning away from it. 
It means heading a new direction. It means rejecting sin and turning back towards God. But repentance is not just merely this external behavior modification thing. Over and over again in scriptures we see that the heart of repentance is not just an external behavior change, but an internal heart level turnaround. You see, our behaviors are always like a result of what's going on in our heart. And so if we're really ever going to repent, we've got to repent not just of bad behavior or wrong actions, but of a, the things that lead us to that on a heart level in the first place. See, and that's what Jesus is helping Peter to do when he turns to him after breakfast in verse 15, and he asks him for the first time. Right? He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That last part is crucial that you see. He says, do you love me more than these? See, Jesus isn't just giving Peter a chance to declare his love instead of denying him. He's inviting him to turn around on the thing that was the cause of it all in the first place. You see, throughout all four of the Gospels, Peter is always constantly comparing himself to other people. And whether it's him arguing with the other disciples about which one of them is greatest and will get to sit at Jesus' right hand, or whether it's him always just being the one who has to step out first and be the first one to talk and the first one to lead and the first one to do something and the first one to say something, right? Right? Or whether most or, like that's always what's going on. He's always comparing himself to people because like all of us, he's tempted to base his righteousness on his standing with God on his performance. And the way that you measure that is by comparing yourself in your performance with other people. And that's the very thing he was doing the night he denied Jesus, right? In John, uh, John tells us that uh, that night Jesus told his disciples that one would betray him. And, and John tells us that Peter responded, right? That, that he died for him before he betrayed him, right? Yeah, well, Matthew and Mark, what they add to that account, they help us see that Peter didn't just say that he died for Jesus before betraying him. He said, even if everybody else leaves you, I never will. See what Peter's doing, right? He's not just saying, I'm not going to leave you, Jesus. He's saying, I'm better than all these other ones. I'm more committed to you than all these other disciples. I love you more than they do. I'm more serious. I'm a varsity disciple. They're JV disciples. Like, like, I, like I'm the most committed. Not just that I'm committed, I'm the most committed. And so what Jesus is doing here, when he asks Peter if he loves him, he doesn't just say, do you love me? He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? What's he doing Heidi's saying, Peter, are you still trying to compare yourself to others? What's going on with that, Peter? And when Peter responds, not by saying, yes, Lord, you know I love you more than everybody else. He doesn't say that. No, instead he simply responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. See what Peter's really saying. And his response, what he's really saying to Jesus is, Jesus, I repent. Jesus, I'm turning around on comparing myself with others. And I'm not basing my standing with you on my performance and what I can observe and what people can see. I'll base it on what you can see. Jesus, you know my heart. It doesn't matter what anyone else can see. Jesus, you know that I love you. And that's all that matters. See, Peter was rejecting the foundation of his relationship with God, being his comparable performance with others, and he was instead embracing a foundation that was based on Jesus' grace and knowledge of him. He was repenting, he was turning around. 
And because Peter has not just felt sorry about his sin, but has turned back from the real problem underneath it all and begun to build his foundation on the right soil, Jesus can move on to the final part of his restoration. It's his recommissioning. You see, Jesus, three times in our passage, he recommissions Peter for service and for sacrifice in the kingdom. See, the truth is, is that when you and I fail, we don't just need to be forgiven. Right? If, if we just have forgiveness, what happens is you get back to this spot where like, you're really grateful for Jesus, but you're like, listen, I, like, my story's over. Like, I don't have anything left to give. Like, I'm back at zero, and like, I'm just trying not to mess this crap up again. But rather, if you see that, see what we need is not just forgiveness, we need restoration. And that's what Jesus is doing each time when he tells Peter, when Peter tells him he loves him, Peter, Jesus responds by saying, Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Just to be clear, what Jesus is not doing when he says that is he's not saying prove it. Right? He's not telling Peter, right, if you really love me, then like, do the work of ministry. Like, that's how I'll know if you really love me. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he's doing is he's recommissioning Peter as a leader. He's recommissioning Peter as a disciple, as a leader in the church. See, Jesus doesn't tell Peter, hey, dude, you can still be on the team, but like, you're going to ride the bench for eternity here. He recommissions him back to a place of leadership, back to a place of influence, back to a place of significance in the kingdom. And he enlists him as an under-shepherd to the good shepherd. You see, Jesus has described himself in John 10 as the good shepherd who knows his sheep and who loves them and who leads them and who lays his life down for them. And he is inviting Peter, he is calling Peter back into that kind of level of servant leadership. It's incredible significance Jesus doesn't just forgive Peter, he recommissions him for kingdom work. And just like, here's the good news, Jesus loves doing that. He loves using broken and messed up and failed people for significant things in his kingdom, because when he does that, he gets all the credit, because none of us have any business doing anything. And what happens is, he, it's not just that he gets all the credit, it's that you get all the joy. When you realize that you get to be a part of his kingdom work in meaningful, real ways, when you get, like, when the reality that Jesus is calling you into service in his kingdom, even though the truth is you should not even have made the team, like, that fills you with life and joy, and it, like, makes anything he asks you to do for his kingdom full of dignity and honor and significance, because, like, you know you shouldn't be on the team. And when that reality sinks deeply into your heart, what happens is not only that you'll long to glorify God and to glorify Jesus with your lives, but also even in the midst of your death. See, and that's what Jesus is telling Peter at the very end there, right? That whole metaphor he's saying, you know, you used to dress yourself and go where you wanted. One day you'll stretch out your hands and be led somewhere you don't want to go. That whole imagery, pretty much every commentator articulates, it's a, it's a metaphor for crucifixion for the way that Peter would die. And church history tells us that is indeed how Peter died. See, the beginning of Peter's ministry started with him promising to never deny Jesus and then breaking that promise just the same day he made it. And yet the end of Peter's ministry is altogether different. He wouldn't deny Jesus anymore. He would live for him and even die for him 
And I just need you to see this. It's not just because he believed that Jesus died for him. It's not only because of that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. You see, Peter experienced the resurrecting power of Jesus' grace. It made him new. It gave him new life. He wasn't just forgiven. He was given new, restored life. And it's not because he was better than anybody else, but because he'd relied on Jesus and grace instead of performance. See, the gospel invites all of us into that kind of a restoration. right? A restoration that's, that involves a rewritten story, not an erased one. A restoration that requires repentance, not just sorrow about consequences. And a restoration that leads to recommissioning and service in his kingdom with eternal, valuable consequences, all based on belief believing and experiencing the resurrecting grace of Jesus. Is that such good? I hope that's good news to you. See, and it's that good news that we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. We are reminding ourselves that the resurrecting grace of Jesus that empowers new lives is possible because he died for you. And his death pays the penalty for your sin. And so when we take communion, we dip the bread in the juice. There's a table in the back and the left and the right. And it's a reminder of his body and blood that were broken for you and shed for you so that you might have forgiveness. And it points us to the resurrection hope that we have because he didn't just stay dead, he rose again. And he gives us new life to live new resurrected lives for his glory, even though we don't deserve it. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, not to be just your Lord and your God, but to be your Savior and your King, then go back during our time of worship and take communion. Let it be this like joyful reminder of all that Jesus has done for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're figuring out what it means to follow Him, or you're realizing this morning that you don't have the kind of heart-level relationship with Him that John's pointing out to us here. You might be familiar with him, but you don't love him yet. I just want to encourage you. You are absolutely welcome here. But I'd encourage you as well, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. That doesn't change anything. It's a chance for us to remember all that he's done and to keep putting our hope in him, not in us. That's what it's about. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, talk with God. Some of you are here, and you this morning, you're in the same place that Peter was at the beginning of chapter 21. And you are believing the lie that even though you've been forgiven through faith in Jesus, you couldn't possibly be of any use to him anymore. Like you have messed up too badly, you have failed too spectacularly, like your, your part in that story is over. And I just want to invite you this morning to reject that lie and instead to ask God by his grace to help you not forget your failures, but to help you rewrite them. So that instead of just pain points and reminders of all your weaknesses, your failures might be chances for his grace to be new and fresh good news to you. The kind of good news that empowers you to live for him. 
Let me, just, let me just say this as well. It's so easy for us to feel like, okay, well, maybe Jesus forgives us and maybe he restores us, but like, I don't, like at this point, like, I don't really have anything to bring to the table. Right? Even if I am restored and have this call, like, what do I have to bring to the table? And the good news is, is that the gospel is not a message that God needs you. It's a message that in spite of the fact that he doesn't, he still uses you for his kingdom eternal purposes. I love the part of the story, right, where Jesus, he calls the disciples, right? He says, hey guys, why don't you bring some of the fish in? Like, let's use it. And then it's like they arrive and it's like he already has fish on the fire. Because spoiler alert, uh, he didn't need their fish at all. He's the one who provided them all. And like, like, he didn't need them for anything. Like the breakfast was ready. And God's kingdom works like that all the time. God invites you, like he calls you into relationship with him. He commissions you for his purposes. He gives you everything you need to do it. And in spite of the fact that you could never do it on your own, he lets you be a part of using the things he gave you for his glory. Like that's just such good news. Like you don't bring anything into the table and that's okay. Because like God brings everything you need to the table. Let me just, I'll just, one more thing too. We are running out of time, but let me just say this. Like, Jesus is inviting you into his kingdom purposes, his recommissioning. It is also, it's not based on the fact that you won't fail again. Or like, two seconds into Peter getting recommissioned, he like turns around and he's like, hey, what about that John guy? Like, is, what are you going to do with him? And I can just only imagine Jesus being like, okay, <laughs> Peter, for the last time. Yeah, he didn't yell. I'm sure he was much more gracious, right? But I'm sure Jesus was like, dude, stop comparing yourself to people. Like, you have my grace. That's all you need. Peter would fail again two seconds into his recommissioning. If you read the book of Galatians, he would fail really significantly again. Like, Peter is not done failing. You and I aren't done failing, right? It's not like Jesus is like, hey, listen, I will restore you and I will recommission you, but like, this is your last chance. Don't mess that up. It's not based on that, because it never was. It was always based on his grace, and that's so that fuels your life, live for him. And so some of you need that reminder, right? But others of you are here, and you are still in a place where Peter was before he saw the risen Jesus. And not only have you not experienced the, rest, the restoring, resurrecting life the gospel brings, you have not experienced the forgiveness it brings either. And like Peter, maybe you've spent a whole lot of your life being really busy for God, trying to compare yourself to others and to find your righteousness based on your performance and to be really devoted, and that's the thing that God will honor. But when Jesus asks Peter the question, he doesn't say, do you know the right things about me? Have you been busy for me, Peter? He says, Peter, do you love me? Because here's the reality, when he has your heart, he gets everything else. He's not just after your mind. He's not just after some intellectual agreement. He's after your heart and your whole life lived and given for him. And that only happens if you not just know about him, but you love him. That's the way you can tell. Right? It's the way you can tell if you have the real faith or the fake stuff. Do you love him? When you have the real thing, you've been transformed by his love and you love him back. You don't see him as a boss. You don't like look at him for duty and obligation. He has your heart. 
And that transforms him. See, the gospel is good news. Not a good, like not good information. It's not a task list. It's good news about all that Jesus has done for you. And so some of you are here this morning and you need to embrace faith in him to lay aside all your works, to lay aside all the other stuff you're looking to for your foundation and let his grace be the one thing that rescues you. Let that change you now. Let it enable you to receive his forgiveness and let it empower you as you see his restoring grace resurrecting you and giving you new life each and every day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for this passage. God, it is such, just such good news. Not just that you use failures like Peter and like me and like the rest of us, Jesus. Not just that you want to forgive us, but that you want to use us for your kingdom. And that even though we shouldn't even, we like, we don't even deserve to be on the team and you use us for incredible things in your purposes. And God, might that fill us with joy might it fill us with awe and love for you. God, I'm just like so encouraged like about how John ends this book. Like this chapter has been so good. The rest of the book has been so good. But he tells us it's just a tiny glimpse at your glory. God, if, if people tried to write down how beautiful you are, how majestic you are, all the things that you've done, Jesus, the earth would just be a crappy, small, insignificant library. And so we are grateful, Jesus, for you, the forgiving king, the restoring king. We are so grateful that you call us not just to, not just to back to zero, but to new, restored life and purpose with you. May we experience your grace and live new resurrected lives because of it. Amen.